from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning, sports fans. Good morning, business fans. And good morning, statistics fans. Welcome to Moneyball, Wharton Moneyball, here on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, where all three of my favorite topics collide. This is Eric Bradnell. I'm professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. And I'm with my co-host this morning, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen. For the next two hours, we're going to talk about the world of sports, the world of business, and the world of statistics. And again, there's lots to talk about, lots of sports going on right now. And of course, this is a call-in show, so please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And of course, I hope everyone's been following us. I've actually, Shane, I've been tweeting quite a bit at W. Moneyball here for our show. Oh, our social media presence is huge, and you are the biggest part of that, my friend. Well, actually, although Matt posts a lot of stuff on there, a lot of polls happening on Wharton Moneyball as well. So, Shane, we always start here on Wharton Moneyball the first half hour with what caught our eye in sports. I I don't think it, it goes without saying you and I are big baseball fans, but let's at least start with the NFL. What caught your eye this week in the NFL? Well, um, I want one thing. I'm I'm pretty interested in is just how I, I mean the Giants actually so so Eli Manning is I mean we we kind of there were some signs of decline over the last couple years uh even before this season started and, and you know people had already voiced the concern that the, if the Giants were going to be slowed by anything this year it would be Eli because they gave him I mean they clearly gave him a lot of targets yes right so uh they definitely buffed up the receiver core and they have a great defense um, but Eli just looks terrible. And I, and I want, I mean, again, I, I, I of all people should not overread two games worth of data, right? But he just looks so profoundly bad. Now, I, right I want to ask you a question if this comparison, look, yeah. I'm not comparing Eli Manning with Tom Brady. I'm not. <laughs> no, no. Tom Brady is <laughs> the greatest quarterback of all time, at least in the top three. Eli Manning is nowhere near that. But well, no, the he's way- the greatest quarterback of all time. We don't have to say this top three thing anymore. I do, but either way, okay. Either way, let's let's go. Let's move am, beyond yeah, that yeah. for a second. There is a point of comparison I wanted to make. About two or three years ago, I started to wonder whether Tom Brady was through in the following sense, not because of his arm strength. It seemed to me that he was starting, you know when quarterbacks stop looking downfield and they their eyes start going closer and closer yep. to the line of scrimmage? For some reason, I thought Tom Brady was there three years ago. And then yep. all of a sudden, I don't know if something changed, he got better receiving core, better blocking schemes. I felt like it was the old Tom Brady. And I yep. actually thought he's, I think he's a better quarterback now than he was three or four years ago. I'm wondering, is there any chance in your mind that Eli Manning goes back to the Eli Manning that's strong in the pocket, that's eluding guys, that's looking downfield? Because what I see is, it's, I mean, I don't think he can get to his targets because the minute the pass rush comes to him, the guy's ducking to the ground, his eyes are coming forward, he's not standing in there. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, he looks extremely jittery in the pocket and he's easily flushed out and he seems to not be able to extend the play the way he used to because that was one of his strengths. He was great. I mean, he had not Aaron Rodgers quality, but he was able to always extend plays and then receivers would get open. Well, you and I have obviously a paper about this this in the following sense. We let's so let's move to a let's merge this with statistics a little bit since we're here at Wharton Moneyball. Um, can NFL quarterbacks have a double humped career? So we've talked about this in various sports, like NBA players. Once you go on the decline, you ain't coming back. 
Right. Baseball players, we've, we obviously have a paper on this. It's very rare that a baseball player has a period of decline unless there's maybe p- performance-enhancing drugs or something else that all of a sudden they start getting better again. Right. Eli Manning is at the age now. He's not 32 or 33 anymore. He's at the age where usually the decline means a continuous decline. Yeah. Is any chance that there's a double-humped pattern yeah, for Eli I, Manning in football? I mean, I haven't looked at the data for Brady, but, but I mean, I kind of trust your eye and your memory. I mean, it, I mean, Brady's an example of somebody that you, you know, I mean, did, was, did have a couple seasons where he was maybe not as impressive as he has been the last couple. So he seems to have swung back up. I mean, it, it's, it, I, I think it is possible. I think it, it, I don't know what they have to do to bring that along in Eli, because they certainly have you know, certainly surrounded him with enough talent on, on at least the at least the receiver core. I don't know, again, how the offensive line of the New York Giants rates. I mean, they certainly were getting a lot of pressure Absolutely. on Eli. So, I mean, maybe Eli with a better line would, would be able to kind of extend things, and that's certainly what Tom Brady has benefited from. New England's always had a good offensive line. Well, obviously, um, and Bill Belichick, of course, being a defensive guy, probably knows how important it is for the other team to have a good offensive line. Let me tell you what caught my eye in sports, and I actually think this could be an interesting year in the NFL. Let me say why. So in the AFC West, which is right now looking really powerful, mm-hmm. we have three 2-0 and teams, the Broncos, the Raiders, and the Chiefs. In the NFC South, we have three undefeated teams, the Panthers, the Falcons, and the Bucks. Then what we have on the contrast is what I call the five awful teams of the NFL. And I have a specific question for you. And here are, the, in my view, the five awful teams. All right, all right. Do you go agree? Slow, so Let's go one by one. Yeah, yep. Do you agree that the Jets are awful? The Jets are terrible. Okay. Do you believe that in a semi sort of way, the 49ers aren't good? They're also terrible, yes. Okay. Would you agree that the Browns are not good? Yeah, yeah, okay. I, think, I think there's consensus on that. Would you agree that the Bears are not good? Yes, I would agree that the Bears are not good. Would you agree, at least until Andrew Luck comes back, that the Colts are not good? Oh, the Colts are deliciously awful. Right. Love it. So here's the point I want to make. Two points. Let's take them one by one. One is a lot of people, like myself, are in what are called eliminator pools. You know, where you pick a team each week, you move on as long yep. as your team continues to win. Is anybody going to lose in an eliminator pool this year in the NFL, given we have five, like just pick against Jets, 49ers, Browns, Bears, or Colts, whichever strong team. It's not like there's last year the Browns stink, stunk. This year there's five awful teams. Just pick whoever's at home, a strong team playing any of those five, and you're going to win. I mean, there, it would, it would need, you would need – I mean, the, How even, can you lose? Well, got, even, one of these teams has got to be playing awful, somebody even, defense. Even these, awful teams – I mean, these, te- these teams, though awful, are not all going – Oh, and 16, right? They well, I want to get win. to that in a second. I want to get to that in a second. They too. will win. Um, and you, I mean, you, but you think there certainly win all- could easily be a perfect storm where, A, one, some of these teams are going to be playing each other some weeks and all take right, themselves out of the pool. There's five of them. That and was they my may not point. all be playing. And, and again, you might have to, you might be forced to pick one of these teams on hosting a game. Well, that's that's the thing I was saying. And that I was starts to become a little dangerous. Right. So my, I agree with you. My belief was, given there's five awful teams, and by the way, I didn't even list the Giants in there, who I don't think are awful. I don't think you think they're awful, but they are 0-2. These five teams, I'm figuring every week of the season, there's probably one of them 
on the road against a team where they're probably more than a seven-point underdog. There's probably going to be almost, almost. Maybe you can only every... use them once, too, right? Uh, we only get through this, like, this will get you through no, the no, first no, no, five no. weeks. I'm using their opponents. Oh, of course, of course, of so course. So I, I have no trouble spreading Silly their me. opponents around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just figuring that was one thing I was thinking. The second thing I was thinking is um, last time I checked in sports when teams play each other, the average win-loss percentage in a league like this is 500. Would you agree yeah, with that mathematically? That, that's that's uh, you, that that usually happens. Yes, yeah. that usually happens. And so, how much? How many wins is it going to take to make the playoffs this year in the NFL? In other words, these teams are going to be stacking up so many losses. So what I'm talking about is we're going to see. Yeah. In my prediction, we're going to see the highest variance season of win losses that we've ever seen in the NFL. Because I think there's likely to be these five teams. I think are all going to be less than four wins. I think we may see an 11-win team not make the playoffs this Which year. Which has we, happened well, before. Well, yeah. your Patriots, the year yeah. Tom Brady was injured, they went 11-5, and five, didn't make the playoffs. But I'm saying, I think you'll see an 11-win team not make the playoffs, and I think you might see the highest variant season we've ever seen in the NFL. Yeah, and I think that 11-win, I, I mean, I certainly, I, I, I could easily see that happen, um, especially in the AFC, where, I mean, yes, you're right. I mean, the AFC West looks so strong. I mean, obviously, it's it's hard to kind of project two games in, but one looks it looks like both wildcard teams are, are, are potentially going to come out of the AFC West. And except they, easily, they have to play each other. Except they have to play each other, um, though they gain again beat up on, like, you know, the Browns and Colts and all those guys in, in, in the same conference. Um, no, that could easily happen, and I think what will ha- if that come if that happens, it will be interesting to see an eleven win team potentially not making the playoffs. Maybe Miami, maybe some one one other team. Um, but then you know, out of the AFC South, you're going to have some nine win team making the playoffs, and maybe less. But that's what I was going to also ask you. Think about the competition right now in the AFC West. And again, if you want to join the conversation about what caught your eye in anything in sports, but obviously we're to, Shane Jensen and I are talking about football right now. Please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Something else. Let's think about the power in the AFC right now. Would you agree the Broncos appear to be a good team? Yeah. Okay. Would you agree that the Raiders are definitely a good team? The Raiders are a good team. Would you agree that the Chiefs are a good team? The Chiefs are not as good as everybody thinks they are, but they are a very good team. Okay. Would you agree the Patriots are probably a good team? That I would agree with. Great. Would you agree that the Steelers are probably a good team? Yeah. And you just said the Dolphins, in your view, may or, win 11 games. Or the Ravens. Games. The Ravens. Yeah, well, sorry. Okay, so listen. yeah. Sorry. Right, right. Jumping ahead. You've just, no, no. I was going to get to the Dolphins and the yeah. Ravens. So you've now listed seven teams. Mm-hmm. Seven. So think about this fierce competition. And by the way, as you pointed out, one of the playoff spots has to be taken by not one of these teams, yeah. by one of these junky AFC South teams. One of them is going to win that division. Yeah. We have seven, I would, con- I think you would agree, I'm not saying they're all Super Bowl-bound teams, but we have seven strong teams in the AFC. It's going to be a remarkable NFL season. Just yeah. remarkable. Yeah, no, it's true. And I, I guess there's no real way around it. Around, I mean, I don't think anybody's going to get on board with the plan of like not respecting the division winners and stuff. But we we should think about what the NFL would look like if we still maybe maintain the division structure but went to like a kind of a, a conference-wide ranking as far as go, getting into the playoffs goes. Um well, that, yeah, I mean, so as you know, the reason the division structure works, actually, we've had a lot of discussion. As a matter of fact, it's a good topic for us to dive into right now on Morton Moneyball is what the NFL does try to do, and you've talked about this a lot, is the balance of the schedule 
means kind of at least you're equally screwed. Yeah. Like you and everybody in your division, you play everybody in your division twice. Yeah. You play another division once. You then play teams that are at your respective like if you ended up third the year before, you play the third place teams. Yeah. And sorry, you play one team in the other conference and one divi- one division in the other conference and one division in yours. So, at least within a division it's relatively fair. You can't complain we didn't have the same chance as somebody else within our division. So actually, I think the NFL, given it's it's not, I don't see it moving to a conference-wide yeah. thing, partially because of division rivals, I think they've done a pretty good job of developing a schedule that gives some sort of balance and fairness. No, no, that's, no, I, I agree. It's just, you know, the, the, fair, the fairness of, like, you know, a nine-win team, Making it over an eleven-win team, and this is not a this is not a particularly exceptional circumstance. It seems to happen every year that the the teams with that the teams with the best records don't necessarily make the playoffs. Absolutely, and I think, but I think at the end of the Which, day, I mean, for example, in baseball, it does not happen. Let me ask you another question. Maybe it's rela- it's related, but it also transition us to baseball. Um, if imagine you're a team in the AFC East, okay. And I, I'm going to relate this to the transition to the Braves during yeah. the mid '90s, during the you know the era where they, I think they won 14 out of 15 years or something That's like that. Ridiculous. Imagine you're the Dolphins, imagine mm. you're the Jets, and imagine you're the Bills, and all of a sudden you now have the Patriots in your division. So I hate to put it this way, but you're not going to win the division. No, you're not. That's right. I had I hate to say it. I mean, forget the Jets that they stink right now. Though. Yeah, I mean, the I Dolphins mean, are a good team. We just said that they've lost. The, not, the Patriots have lost the division. I think like once or twice right. in the last. They're not twenty years. Correct, fifteen years. Right. Yeah, something yeah. Like so that. they're not. So yep. think about what that means for your NFL season already. Because as you've talked about, let's be clear: since you're not going to win your division, do you agree by certainty you're not going to get a bye in the first round of the playoffs? By yeah. definition, a wild yeah. card team cannot. Yeah. Okay, so imagine. You're sitting there, you know you can't win the division, and you've said this, the Shane Jensen rule, the most important predictor of winning the NFL or anything is who plays less games. Yep. Well, already you have a less chance. You could be Miami 11-5, and five, and your chance to go to the Super Bowl are markedly less, let's say, than the Houston Texans, who may go 8-8 eight and eight and win that division. Yeah. Well, I, I'm well, not, I mean, they're I'm, not going to. I mean, if, if Houston, Houston Texans are also not going to contend for a bye with that kind of record. I mean, they they will win their division. They will not be, but they will be still playing in kind of the wild card round, right? Well, I mean, so they won't be right. They won't be a one. The or Houston two Texans seed. aren't getting out of an extra. Right. That they're extra they're game. not getting out of an extra game. And by the way, thanks to our producer Matt Datz, who's obviously listening to our show. Thank you, Matt. It's good that you listen. Um, we actually have a poll right now going. On at W Moneyball, who is the worst team in the NFL right now? Which is um, the Jets. Oh, who is the worst team who isn't the Jets? So yeah. the Colts without Andrew Luck, the Bears, the Browns, or the 49ers. So please, everyone, go to at W Moneyball and vote for, except for the Jets, who maybe most of us believe is the worst team. Do you think it's the Col- luckless Colts, the Bears, the Browns, or the 49ers? Uh, Matt will put up on my screen later in the show. We'll announce who that team is. But please go to at W Moneyball and vote for who the who you think the worst team is. And, of course, you can always call in and just rail on the worst team here at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Who do you of those four think is the worst team? Good question. Um Wow. Well, let me say the following. I think it's the Colts without Andrew Luck. Um, I saw the Bears play the Falcons in week one. 
Um, they the should Bears' be- defense is not terrible. The Bears should have beaten the Falcons. They were down yeah. to the one-yard line, first and goal with a minute left in the game, and um, Mike Lennon couldn't get him into the end zone. They were going to beat the NFC champion Falcons. This is another example. You say it's an awful team. Okay, it's an awful team at home. Yep. That any awful look. Home teams, even awful teams, sometimes go three and five yeah. at home. Didn't the Browns basically all they 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 kept it close against the Steelers? I mean, this they, this can twenty one to eighteen happen. was the final yeah. twenty. And know, so, so, by the way, I don't think the Browns are the worst team. No, and I don't, I don't think, think the Forty so. ers are absolutely putrid. They're not awful. Yeah. The Colts but are really bad. The Colts without Andrew Luck, and maybe <laughs> even with Andrew Luck, they're yeah. awful. They're they really, have bad play really at bad. every position. Yeah, they're really so. In my view, but again. Yeah. Who cares what Eric Bradlow thinks here on Wharton Moneyball? Well, I do. I, I, thank you. I appreciate that. But I meant for the poll. Yeah. Go in and vote. Let's see if you confirm our views as well. I do love the fact that the Jets are in people's minds so bad we have to hold them out of the poll. They would wreck the poll for worst team in the NFL. That, I think it's maybe that fun. Matt wanted to put up four options as opposed to five. <laughs> but either way, we'll we'll go with your theory there. Um, so I wanted to switch now to baseball. And, and you know, we'll we're actually uh, have a good baseball guest on. At, uh, uh, Rob Arthur we have coming on at 8.30. So we have a great guest coming on here to talk about baseball as well. There's a team in the MLB right now that has won seven straight games. The team is hot. It has momentum. Do you know who that team is? No, I don't actually. It's the defending champion Chicago Cubs. Mm. So all of a sudden, the mad devil Joe Madden has the Cubs all of a sudden playing good baseball again. Right. They're almost a lock. I think they're pretty much a lock to win the NFC, the, uh, the NL Central, I guess it is. And so um, how do you see the Cubs as a threat? Now in the playoffs. I mean, as you've said, does regular season record mean anything? They're, no. Look, we all agree they've not been as good as the Dodgers this year, not even close. They've not been as good as the Nationals this year. But if I asked you right now to pick, given they, again, I'm just letting you know the data, they've yeah. won seven straight. They're 84 and 66, just to let you know. So yep. th- th- that's respectable. Um, just to give you the other data, the Dodgers have 96 wins, the Nationals have 91 wins. They're sitting there at 84 wins. If I asked you right now to pick the Cubs versus the Dodgers or the Nationals, who would you take? I would probably take the Dodgers over the Cubs. Is it because of the pitching? Just yes. right. I mean, the Cubs yeah, pitching just I mean, hasn't the been Cubs, so fantastic. Well, I mean, it's it, it, it's also they just have had a lot more injuries this year and stuff like that. They're they're they, I mean, everything went right for the Cubs last season, um, essentially. Um, so. Yeah, I would t- I would take the Dodgers, but you know me, I would take the Dodgers at like maybe fifty four to forty six percent or something like that. I mean, I'm not going to go very beyond a coin flip because I really do think that's how the baseball playoffs work. Well, let me tell you one thing I was also noticing about the baseball playoffs, which I love. Do you agree? It's likely, almost certain, right now, the Dodgers will be the one seed. Mm-hmm. Okay, the Nationals will be the two seed. Yep, the Cubs will be the three seed. Okay, and then there'll be whatever wild card teams there are. Um, yeah. going to, into the playoffs. You know, there'll be the four, whoever the fourth team is. Maybe it's the Rockies or it's uh, the, the, the Brewers. I love the Brewers making a run, by the way. The Brewers, That's fun. The Brewers are making a run. That's fun. But here was the point I wanted to raise. In baseball, there's no hiding. And what I mean by that is if the playoffs started today, for the Cubs to make the World Series, they would have to win the first series at Nationals. Yeah. And then the second series, assuming it goes according to the chalk, they'd have to play at Dodgers. Yeah. So the one thing I have to say I love about baseball is if the Cubs 
make it to the World Series, and let's say they win the World Series, they're probably going to have to beat the Nationals, the Dodgers, and let's say the Red Sox or whoever at Astros, Astros whoever it's yeah. going to be. Cleveland. Cleveland. You That'd can't, be an amazing right, rematch. You can't argue that they're not—I mean, there's no escaping it. They're going to be the away team at the Nationals mm-hmm. and at the Dodgers. They just are. Yep. No, that's right. Uh, no, but you can always say in like the NFL, like, oh my God, we got a bad break. Why do we get to have to play the no, Patriots that's... in the first round? In baseball, they're going to be playing the Nationals and the Dodgers. I just like the structure. Yeah. I like. I was feeling like, wow, the Cubs. You know, they turned it on at the right time. All right. Well, we're going to find out how yeah. good they are. Yeah. No. And I mean, I mean, you know, if if, if you want to sort of. Uh, uh, Single out a team that might feel bad about it, something like you know the the I guess the Nationals who probably would would want to play like a team that's a little bit less good with their you know having earned their second seed or whatever. But no, I mean it's that that's the great thing about the baseball playoffs is it is such an exclusive club, right? It is very hard to make the playoffs in place in baseball, and so you know that once those teams get there, that they're really good teams. And then in fact, that's what makes it such a coin flip once you're there is that there are no bad teams now come playoff time, except for the Twins who will lose automatically to the Yankees. Well, you say that, but I appreciate you're throwing that bone out to me as a Yankee Come fan. Come on. But it's one game. I've watched the last 20 years of baseball. When have the Twins ever beaten the Yankees in the playoffs? Um, Two years, three years ago, when they had the one-game playoff. Well, I just forget the the big guy's name on the I thought tw- the Astros oh, beat sorry, the Oh, sorry, it was the Astros. Yeah, oh, yeah, never the mind. Twins the Twins always no, 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 the twins. lose the Yankees. Yeah, 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 that's yeah, yeah. a thing. That's just the thing we... That's just the thing the Twins do. Well, let me ask... I appreciate that. Let me ask you a question about that. I know the answer is no. Let's... Is there any... No, there's no chance. I was going to ask you, is there any chance the Yankees would... No, sorry, the Red Sox would prefer not winning the division? And the answer is no, because you have to play the wild card game. But if you ignore that... Could you ever see a team rather being the four seed than the three seed? Because the four, the top team is going to have to play the Indians. Yeah. The third team is going to have to play the Astros. Is there any right now? It looks like Red Sox and Astros. Right? Yeah. No. I mean, but, no, I mean, the Astros and uh, Indians are only like one game apart. So I mean, that ranking could easily switch in the next. But, uh, but as we've pointed out weeks. in baseball, the thing you would never do, you'd never want to be in the wild card no, game. I mean, that's no, why. And you no, and I have both no, like this I, about baseball, I which love is the structure. They keep a lot of teams in contention with this two wild card but team you're structure. in contention but you're in contention for a one game playoff That's which right. is you, so much better it definitely does reward the division winners i was gonna ask you something if you're disappointed about this so there's 12 games left in the season obviously yankees red sox probably one yeah. of the greatest rivalry in sports how many times do you think left for the rest of the season the yankees and the red sox play each other and by the way it's i'm a not sure they league. play each other again they don't and that's the point i was trying to bring up what the hell happened to the schedule makers, the Yankees and the Red Sox, I think, I may get the number wrong, 17, 19, whatever the number of times yeah. is they play each other. They haven't played each other in a few weeks. In the last 20-something games of the season, the Yankees and the Red Sox are not playing each other. Now, you're happy about this as a three-game lead with your Red Sox hat on, your damn Red Sox hat on. You're I, I mean, happy they, about I, this. I, I, yeah, I mean, But don't you think they're – no, no, I'm being serious no, no, for one yeah. second – don't you think there's something wrong with the schedule? It's that a the odd. Yankees and the Red Sox for the last. I mean, when's the last time they played each other? When oh, is the like, last? I, I, it was only a couple weekends ago. All right, but it? all right. So yeah, that's, but in it, baseball, that's twelve to fifteen no, games I, ago. There's twelve to fifteen more. The last twenty-five games of the season, the Yankees and the Red Sox are not playing. It's really odd that they're they had that that schedule. The schedule is not a little bit backloaded, where the Yankees and Red Sox would play in the last like. 
couple series. Well, so we have thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, who continues to listen to Wharton Moneyball, yeah. and you should too. September 3rd was their last game. So basically for the last 25 to 30 games yeah. of the season, they don't play each other. Yeah, I'm a little surprised that actually, yeah, I, I don't know. remember what their schedule is. I assume it's mostly division, within division, but, you know, I think the schedule, if I was making the MLB schedule up, I would basically have them last month be almost entirely within division. games. Within division, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And by the way, one of the things I wanted to bring up related to that was, let's imagine I told you, forget that we just talked about what the schedule is. Let's imagine I told you with 12 games to play, which is roughly the number, the Red Sox had a three-game lead over the Yankees, which is true. This is so far, that's factual. But forget that you know the schedule for a second. What would you say are the odds that the Red Sox win the division? Pretty high. What would you say it is? Because I mean, you could do. Here's the math. Three games I, with uh, yeah, how many series tw- left? There's four series left. There's twelve games to play. So this is the way I for our fans here on Moneyball. This is the statistician and me doing the math. Let's say the Yankees go, you know, seven and five. Okay, eight, even eight and four. All right. Well, the Red Sox only have to go five and seven. Yeah. And there's no evidence to suggest they're only going to go five and seven. So what odds right now? If I hadn't told you the schedule, would you say that the Red Sox would have to win the division? Seventy five percent, eighty percent. Yeah, uh, that that was actually what I was thinking in my mind. Around around three quarters. Okay. How much would that change if I told you the Yankees and the Red Sox had four games left? Oh well, that's they would change substantially. Well, yeah. that, but that's my point. Yeah. Is that the fact is there's no head to head competition against them, and it means the Yankees have to hope on other teams who many of them, by the way, as you know, are playing for nothing. Yep. They may have called up you and me to yep. get some practice out there. And so, in some sense, this is a tr- that's why I hate the fact that they're not playing each other. And I, by the way, I probably, I don't want to, I have to be honest here on Wharton Moneyball, I'd probably be saying this even if the Yankees were the ones with the three-game yeah, no, lead. No, it I, just seems wrong to me that the Yankees aren't being given the opportunity I mean, to they catch did up to the play. Reds. The Red Sox, 19... They were and they play the opportunity. every year. They play each other the same... By the way, I think the Yankees may have won the season oh, series think, this year I, against the I Red Sox. I remember the Yankees beating the Red Sox more often than the other. But, um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I, I actually agree with your general point that, you know, the last month of the baseball season, it's surprising when you're not sort of seeing some of these big divi- kind of classical division rivalries be represented. I mean, again, the last month of the season should basically mostly just be within division. I can but. just say, again, I can say in all my years of watching baseball, which is, you know, take my life number, take my age and subtract three, I don't ever remember a season where the Yankees and Red Sox did not play the last month of the season. I don't ever remember right. that happening. Well, for example, uh, the Red Sox in their last uh, couple weeks play uh, Cincinnati. That's oh, going to be that's, that's nice. an epic match. <laughs> that's nice. That's that's, <laughs> that's nice. A, that's a compelling one that everybody can get into. Classic uh, Boston versus Cincinnati. All right, I have one other baseball topic I want to talk about before our first uh, quarters over here on Martin Moneyball. So I'm not going to tell you who this player is, but I want to I want to read you some numbers of this player. I'm going to read you three seasons of this player, and you tell me whether this player is getting better, worse, or either way. Okay. So this is a player in 2014. Okay. This player batted 287. Pretty good. With an on-base percentage of 377, a slugging of 561, and an ops of 939. Okay, that was this player in 2014. 2016, this player batted 315, an on-base percentage of 441, a slugging of 550, and an ops of 991. Okay? Mm-hmm. In 2017, this year, this player is batting 315, with an on-base percentage of 452, a slugging of 638, and an ops of 1.090. Is this player getting better, 
or worse. Appears to be getting better. Yeah. It's Mike Trout. <laughs> and the 2014 and 16 years that I read you, he won the league MVP. So I wanted to throw out to you, as someone, as you know, Mike Trout was injured for part of the season. Yeah. In, in 2014, he played 157 games. In 2016, he played 159 games. As of right now, he's played 102 games. Can Mike Trout, with an ops of 1.09, a slugging of 638, and a batting average of 315, should he be the league MVP, yeah. despite the fact that he only played 100, maybe he'll end up with 110 games? Um, what actually, do you know what his war is compared to, like, judges, for example? Like, like how much did those, like, missing games kind of cost him in sort of a cumulative way it's is, I guess, what I'm getting at. Yeah, so it's interesting. What made me think about this article is there's a great article, not just plugging because Rob Arthur's coming on, there's a great article on 538 that talks about, it basically shows the trajectory of every player with their wins above replacement as the season, this season, has yeah. gone on. Mike Trout, obviously given he played a third less games, is not at the top of wins above yeah. replacement. But he's like fifth. So it, it basically shows that he's so great yeah. that despite playing two-thirds of the games, this guy's trajectory is off the charts. It's a really interesting. For those of you, you know, not we don't get anything except yeah. you listen, you learn more about sports and statistics and business. Go to 538 and see their analysis of Mike Trout's wins above replacement, even despite him missing a third of the season. Basically, he was so far ahead, people kind of caught him, and now he's so, he's yeah. he's accelerating so quickly. Again. And the exciting part about this is the Angels and are actually kind of they're they're pretty close to the Twins in the, in in the standings. They could actually sneak in above the Twins. And then all of a sudden, the one-game playoff is between the Yankees and the Angels, between which Judge is, and Trout, which I think is a better matchup anyway, because it's not an automatic win for the Yankees. And also, of course, I think something you've noticed, I mean, at least I think you're happy about this. Even as a Red Sox fan, you're happy about this. Um, Judge seems to at least have gotten back to what I think you and I think is probably his... A reasonable His, le level. his normal yeah. level. Like, look, he's not the Aaron Judge of the first half of this. No, no one's the no, Aaron no, Judge of the like, first half. Yeah, yeah, no right. one is that. Yeah. But at least he's back to a level... He, look, he's going to end up with somewhere in the 45 to 50 home run he range. Good season. Yeah, he had a good season. Let's, yeah. let's just... I mean, look, you can say first half... By the way, just for, in our last minute before our break, people that don't look at things in a statistical way always want to say, yeah, but look at the first half. No, but the thing is, you have to look at the whole record. It's, I mean, the whole record suggests he was really hot the first half. Maybe he's slightly below what his norm would be for the second half. But on average, I mean, this, he's well, it's so about let right. Well, so let me ask you a question as a fan of the Yankees. Like, are you, would you be more pleased with Aaron Judge? Like, let, let, I'll give you... The same season totals, but let's say he was very consistent throughout the season and just kind of slowly, quote-unquote, slowly accumulated those 45 to 50 home runs. Yep. Or what he actually did, which was have an insane pace and then really cool down. Like, like, do you, do you would would the more consistent one make you feel even better about Aaron Judge, or do you do you feel equivalent about those two? Well, this is a great question by Shane Jensen. I would ask answer that question, but I'm going to ask Rob Arthur the answer to that question, which we'll be doing after the break. So this has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow. I'm here this morning with my colleague Shane Jensen here in Wharton Moneyball on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. Please stay with us and join us right after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, a professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. And I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. And of course, this is a call-in show. You can join the conversation here at 1-844-WHARTON. 
button. That's 1-844-942-7866. And thanks to our sound engineer and associate producer, Danielle Bruno, for bringing us back with some music this morning. I was kind of a little bit of chair dancing in my seat here to the music, so thanks, Danielle, for that. And, of course, you can also listen to our show besides the fact that we're 8 to 10 a.m. live here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School, live every week, Wednesdays 8 to 10. We're replayed throughout the week. But thanks to Danielle's hard work, we're also on iTunes and SoundCloud. So you can go ahead and listen to our show uh, on iTunes and SoundCloud. We'll take listeners whenever we can get them, and it's uh, if you can't hear uh, all of the show live. So, Shane, we're very fortunate, given we've been talking a lot of baseball. Uh, we know about baseball, but now we're about to talk to somebody that really knows about baseball. So we're welcoming Rob Arthur to the show. Uh, Rob is 538's baseball columnist. Turns out he also writes about crime, so we'll ask him about that. Um, you can follow Rob on Twitter at at no underscore little underscore plans. So, Rob, uh, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here this morning with my co-host, Shane Jensen. Thank you for having me on. Uh, it's great to have you on, Rob. So, Rob, before we get to uh, a bunch of the articles that you've written lately, and we'd love to ask you about them, Shane asked me a question just before the break, which I'd like to ask you. So we were talking about Aaron Judge. We were talking about his now his impressive numbers for the entire season, but also that he's been extremely high variance for the season. Obviously, he was ridiculously hot in the first half. Then he went into a slump. Now he's kind of maybe back to his norm. As as you study baseball and think about analyzing the value of a player, what do you think? Shane asked me the question. Would you have rather had a consistent pace Aaron Judge for the whole season or a high-variance Aaron Judge? How do you, someone that studies baseball and analytics, how do you think about it? So um, that's a really interesting question. I think that's come up before in the past with other players, too, like Giancarlo Stanton and the Marlins. I think it all depends on the context of the team. So if you have a good team that's regularly performing well, you want a consistent player who's just going to kind of add to that and give you an extra edge. If you have a bad team um, and you're struggling to get runs on the board, then I think you want a higher variance player who will occasionally come out and just dominate a game and give you a chance against a better team. Uh, so I think it, it really does depend, like, where that player is situated and who his teammates are. Well, let me ask you, so let me, and just a follow-up question to that, as you evaluate Aaron Judge going forward, because you do a lot of statistical analysis on players, which I want to get to in a second, on teams, etc., which, like, if you had to project as you're sitting here right now, Aaron Judge, let's say, for the 2018 season, is he a 2090 guy? Is he a 30-100 guy or a 40-plus, 110-plus guy? How do you see him going forward, given his massive strikeout rate, the obvious holes in his swing? Like, are pitchers going to catch up to a player like him? I think they're going to catch up, and I think they have caught up to some extent. I mean, there's always this constant battle between pitchers and hitters as they get more and more experience, uh, where the pitchers are coming up with new tactics to stymie a hitter, and the hitters, in return, have to adjust to the new tactics that are being used against them. So I think it's very clear that his true talent level is not what we saw in the first half of the season. With that said, I do think that he's a very good hitter, and he's he's hitting the ball so hard that it's hard to imagine him not being very successful in the league. So I don't know exactly where his stats will fall, but I th- if I had to guess, I would say it's closer to that first half than the second half. Uh, and I think we've sort of seen him come back towards that first half in the last couple of weeks. But it's not going to be, you know, the stratospheric heights of first half Aaron Judge, certainly. 
Yeah, an interesting stat I saw last night as I was watching the Yankee game was in his first half of the season, I know Shane had talked about this, his batting average on balls in play, which we all agree is a wonderful statistic. It's what's your batting average on balls in play was something like 450. Shockingly, in the second half of the season, it's like 270. Now, that's an incredibly low number not just for him, but maybe for many players. Um, so that number, I don't know, about Rob, how you feel about it, but that number made me think that this second half isn't just a slump. Like, why is he batting so poorly on balls in play? Yeah, I think that's probably some bad luck. I mean, league average BABIP is something like 300 or 310, something like he's that. He's below, that's so what shocked me. He was below that number significantly. Right, right. Of course, he was above that number significantly in the first half. So where it where it evens out, I suspect he'll over his career he'll have a higher than league average uh, Babbitt because he hits the ball so hard. But um, I don't think it'll end up being 450 or anything like that. I think the highest Babbitts that you see consistently for a player maybe like 350 for a Mike Trout type. So perhaps he'll end up around there, which not perhaps not coincidentally is his season long average. So I think that you know maybe it's that's a more realistic expectation for him and the lower production that will bring is, is probably where he'll end up. So, Rob, uh, we may have to have you on every single week because you keep saying stuff that makes me think of other stuff. And our producer, Matt Datz, gave me so <laughs> many interesting questions to ask you. But now I have to, since you mentioned Mike Trout and we were just having a discussion about Mike Trout, I have to ask you, in your mind, can he be the league MVP with a you know OPS of 1.090 and a war of six, um, even though he's only played two-thirds of the games? And is the guy, in your mind, just getting better? Yeah, to me, I, I really want to see him win the MVP because he is just so incredible. The, what he's accomplished this year, missing about two months of the season and then coming back to produce more wins above replacement, more value to his team than almost any other player, it's astounding. I don't know that there's ever been a feat like it in MLB history. So I'm really hoping that he can come back in the last uh, couple of weeks and, and make the case even stronger. But he absolutely deserves at minimum some consideration and be the award itself. Do you think it would be a do you think it would be a justification for analytics? Like do you think that, you know, this would be let's imagine he wins the MVP. Obviously he's not gonna lead the league in home runs, he's not gonna lead the league in RBIs, he's not gonna lead the league in batting average. But do you think at some level, partly the reason why you're excited about it, and I would be excited and Shane would be excited, is we would finally be able to say, you know what? analytics has arrived analytics has arrived when a guy that's played two-thirds of the season can win the mvp yeah i do think that is part of it and that's always been kind of analytics has always been intertwined with mike trout and his fans because he's a he's an extraordinary player but he's extraordinary in that he does all the things very well and none of the things extraordinarily so he doesn't he doesn't hit a lot of home runs and he, he never has but despite that he's amazing as a hitter he's probably the best or one of the best hitters in the league. Um, but you can even look at sort of boring stats like walk rate to, to strikeout rate, and he's excelling even there. He, he walks now more than he strikes out. So I, he, is, he is definitely an analytics uh, darling, but you don't need to rely on analytics stats to be impressed at what he's done uh, in terms of uh, hitting and fielding just in 
two thirds of a season essentially. It's it's really amazing. So you're listening to Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Brother, and I'm here with my co-host Shane Jensen. We're joined here by Rob Arthur of 538. He's 538's baseball columnist. And if you have a question for Rob, like I've had a thousand of them, but I got a thousand more. But I'd like your questions. Please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You had mentioned uh, Giancarlo Stanton in a. Uh, I know in an article of yours you had talked about him, but you just mentioned him in the same sentence as Judge. Explain to me and all of our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball how in an era where we know the velocity of every pitch, we know where every pitch is crossing the plate, we know where batters hit well from different zones, maybe even by the inch. You know, it used to be there should be nine zones over the plate. Now it's like probably down to a millimeter. How can people like Giancarlo Stan, how can this guy continue to produce when you know, we know everything about every pitch. We know everything about every swing he's taking. How does that happen? And do you see it happening less as analytics get even more advanced? Well, I think it happens because he's just so good. I mean, he is uh, incredibly strong, like Judge. So that was He's always the, the person that pops into my mind as a comparable for, for Judge. But he's also very disciplined. What we saw in his August when he hit more home runs than anyone had ever hit in August, I think, um, was that he held back when pitchers weren't feeding him strikes and when he did get a strike he just walloped it out of the park so he's he's an example of a hitter where there's not really a lot that a pitcher can do even if they try to avoid him they they're still not going to be uh, able to solve him as a, as a problem for them um with that said i don't think that analytics will ever completely reduce those guys i mean there's information on both sides too so just as pitchers can learn about a hitter's vulnerabilities, a hitter can say, well, I know how this pitcher tends to sequence his pitches, for example, or tends to throw when he's behind in the count or ahead in the count. So that information works both ways, and I think you end up, at least for now, in a relative stalemate where both sides are getting smarter, but neither side has uh, has had a decided advantage so far. And there's actually the variance in performance uh, issue too, right? Because even if you have kind of... can analyze the data and design an optimal strategy for dealing with Giancarlo Stanton. You still have to execute those pitches. And, and you know, obviously a, a key strength of these players is that they take advantage of mistakes. So a, a pitcher has to not only know what what the optimal pitch is, but actually somehow do that pitch every time. You know, and right. I, I think that's just very difficult. Yes, exactly. And I think, too, that with a hitter like Stanton, part of their value is that they make the optimal pitch so difficult to execute that in fact, opposing pitchers can't do it regularly. So, for example, maybe Mike Trout has a zone that's like one millimeter by one millimeter that's at the bottom lower left corner of the strike zone. But it doesn't really matter to opposing pitchers because they can never uh, always get a pitch there. It's it's not possible for them to do that. So that's what makes a hitter great to some extent is making those those areas of weakness so small that nobody can consistently execute strategies against them. This is uh, obviously, uh, Rob, we, I would love to go back in time and have Greg Maddox face Mike Trout and see what would happen there. That's the one matchup I'd love to be able to see because uh, he was the kind of pitcher that could live on that one millimeter. But I have a, re- a question as well. Um, your article that you wrote recently about baseballs being juiced, how more wonderful could that be that you're on Wharton Moneyball the day after the all-time record for home runs in a season was broken. So there's lots of theories about why that could be. One could be the baseballs are juiced. That's one theory. It's possible. Another possibility is players are just swinging for home runs now. You know, everybody digs the long ball, 
And, you know, that's what gets you paid. That's what wins games. So where do you sit on that potentially two-sided argument? So I see both as having inputs into the into the explosion in home runs that we've seen in the last few years. But I do think that there's stronger and stronger evidence coming out that the ball has changed in some physical way and that that change to the ball has actually driven a lot of this increase in home runs. Um, between myself and the research I've done on the drag or air resistance of the baseball and some other stuff that's come out at the ringer, looking at the essentially the bounciness of the baseball, it's almost uh, conclusive, I think, that there have been physical alterations to the ball that are making it fly harder off the bat and go further when it does get into the air. So you're saying, Rob, now, I, I haven't seen those articles. You're saying there are articles, because you know MLB has denied this, you're saying that there's articles that show there are physical tests on the ball that suggest that that's... We, we don't, I, I don't know if you... You're, maybe you could talk about this, too. Um, is it 20% of what we're... You know, if we talk about variance explained, is it 20% of the effect, 80% of the effect? Where do you think it is on that scale of creating this massive number of home runs? If you put all the factors together, it ends up being something like 50 to 70%. That's my best guess of the increase in home runs is due to changes to the ball itself. So depending on how you slice it, about a half to more than a half of the changes because of the ball. I do think there are additional changes that are due to hitters optimizing their strategies. And if you think about it, if the ball really did change, it would be smart for hitters to, for example, start hitting more uh, fly balls because if the ball is more liable to go out of the park when it's in the air and you're a hitter and you notice that, the best thing to do would be to get more balls in the air. So I do think that there are correlated hitter changes that are happening, but I, I have to imagine that the, the major force that's driving all this is changes to the ball. So uh, this is uh, Shane Jensen. Um, so behind this, this change, that's this very substantial sort of change that you're describing. Do you think it is the case that they've basically changed the formula for how a baseball made and it's consistent kind of across all baseballs? Or is there a, pro- a, a possibility that it was just sort of like a weird batch or something like that? I don't know enough about how baseballs are made and distributed throughout ba- throughout to teams. Um, yeah. Is it possible that there was just some kind of wacky batch that like got into the mix, and that's kind of what's contributed? Yeah, statisticians, as you know, Rob, yeah. all the time. You know, I'm going back to my this is Eric Bradlow again. I go back to my Dupont days. I studied process control, and you have control charts, and you know, are the baseballs coming off a factory line, and was yeah. it out of control for one batch? Are or... they they opened some new factory, and that new factory is a little bit miscalibrated, and that's going to contribute 20 percent of the baseballs to MLB? I don't know. Yeah, so there's one factory in, I believe, Costa Rica that makes all the baseballs for MLB. And it's important to note here, you were talking about process control before, these baseballs are handmade. Um, They're hand-stitched by uh, laborers in that factory. Now, we can't say a lot about whether the factory procedures have changed and whether that might have influenced how the ball was made because that factory is behind barbed wire, has armed guards. There's really no information that gets out of it. But what I did see when I was looking at past year's data is that the air resistance of the baseball, which is partially a consequence of the stitching on the baseball, which is really, you know, very difficult to do and very sensitive to how a human is actually stitching the ball, um, that jumped around a lot from month to month, way before the juice baseball era began. So I'm, I can certainly believe that originally this home run era came about because of just random variation, mm-hmm. that there were a few lots of balls that change and it happened to drive this massive increase. Now, what I found yesterday in an article is that 
the balls have actually gotten a lot more consistent since the home run era started. So that suggests to me perhaps that it might have been a fortuitous uh, just group of balls that happened to be more homer prone, but now MLB wants to prolong that and wants to uh, keep those balls uh, in the league and keep uh, keep it from reverting back to the way it was before when it was a lot less likely to go over the fence. So this is Wharton Moneyball. Again, this is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, with my co-host this morning, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen. We're talking to Rob Arthur from 538, baseball columnist. And if you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So we've had a, a year, uh, Rob, of very, what I would call, impressive streaks or eras, and I wanted to get your assessment on which of these was more impressive. Um, So obviously we had maybe one of the greatest streaks in baseball history this year, uh, the Indians winning, I think it was 22 in a row, then they lost, and by the way, just so everybody knows, they've now won three in a row, and I have to admit, as a person that I I was not alive in this era, but people forget Joe DiMaggio hit for 56 in a row, that everybody knows, he didn't get a hit. And then I think he hit for something like 25 in a row after that 56 in a row, which is, you know, to me, 81 out of 82 is a lot more impressive than 56 in a row. When you compare the Indian streak with what, I think, is it Reese or Reese Hoskins? Reese Hoskins, they had 18 home runs. How do you put them into, how would you look at those? Like, which one's more impressive? 22 team wins in a row or Reese Hoskins breaking the record on every record of home runs to start a career? Yeah, I think you always have to put it in context of the era in which it lives. And so two two things happened to those different streaks in context of the years that they happened. So Reese Hoskins, of course, he hit a bunch of home runs. But the thing that maybe the defining feature of this year in baseball, and you just mentioned it, with so many home runs being hit, home runs are more common than ever before. So I think that makes his streak perhaps a little bit less impressive than it otherwise would have been. Now, if you look at the Indians, in contrast, uh, they racked up this massive winning streak, 22 games in a row, against competition that's probably much more even than it was in 1916 when the closest and the, the record holder for the longest streak, the New York Giants, played, and they won 26 in a row. So I think the Cleveland Indians are, are actually their incredible accomplishment becomes even more amazing once you factor in the era versus Hoskins' home runs. There's you know it's it's absolutely incredible what he did, but it's it's a little bit less impressive once you realize that so many home runs are, are being hit right now. By the way, uh, I would uh, say that the Indians are more impressive. Yeah, by the way, just to show some love to Rob Arthur here from Wharton Moneyball, I'll be tweeting this about, about this after the show, at W Moneyball. Notice the last two things, last two topics we've talked about. Rob, when he talked about baseball, didn't just talk about mean, but talked about variance. In other words, the balls are more consistent. And notice when you talked about the Indian streak, you also talked about variance, which is they're facing more consistent competition. So just for all our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, Ball, um, you know, the old joke among statisticians, anyone can make a prediction. We get medium-sized dollars to make uncertainty estimates. It always comes down to variance. So, Rob, mm-hmm. thanks for uh, bringing up those two points. Oh, my pleasure. That's definitely important. So, uh, in the last couple minutes we have with you, we only have about two minutes left, how are you looking at the baseball races right now, the wild card races? Um, who do you like going forward in the playoffs? Uh, how do you see things? Yeah, I mean, I think the wild cards are gradually getting sewn up now i mean you have the uh the rockies and the twins i think are likely to claim those last two spots um there there's an outside chance that the brewers might sneak in i think they're they would be actually i think a really strong team in the playoffs but 
I, I don't think they're going to make it. Um, as far as the top teams, I still believe in the Dodgers. Even with their little flump in the last few weeks, I have to imagine that they're just an incredible baseball team based on their statistics for the year. Um, so I, I think that they're going to be almost impossible to beat. And I say that as a Cubs fan who I, you know, I suspect that they're going to go down in heartbreaking fashion to the Dodgers. So I, I really think that they're, they're going to dominate the playoffs. Well, one of the things, Rob, we talked about in our first half hour of the show, which is the one thing about baseball is if the Cubs, the Cubs, assuming that it ends the way it is right now, the Cubs are going to have to play the Nationals potentially, and if they beat them, the Dodgers. So we're going to find out. That's the beauty of baseball is that unlike in the NFL where, oh, man, it would have been nice if the Steelers could have played the Patriots this year because those were the two best teams. Maybe they don't play each other. Well, the Cubs are going to have, if the Cubs win the World Series, they're going to probably have to beat the Nationals, the Dodgers, and maybe the Astros, the Indians, the Yankees, Red Sox, that's murderer's row. I mean, we'll find out. Right. And, and you mentioned variance before. One thing we should always know when talking about playoff baseball, the variance is so high that literally anything could happen. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean I've really always believed just, in the coin flip theory of baseball playoffs. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not far away. I mean, even if you focus really strongly on what, what each advantage, all the advantages that each team can bring to the table, I think it's not far from being just basically coin flips and and when you get to that point i mean who knows maybe the twins will be this year's world series champion well let's hope that's not going to happen as i'm a diehard yankee fan but well first of all rob we want to thank you for joining us here on morton moneyball this has been rob arthur 538's baseball columnist he also writes about crime we're gonna to have to get you back to talk about that you can follow rob on twitter at at no underscore little underscore plans rob writes tremendous articles which i read all the time on 538 so rob thank you for joining us here on morton moneyball Thank you for having me on. So, Shane, um, the way I view things is that, you know, it was interesting to hear Rob basically propose the Shane Jensen theory, which is it's a coin flip when it comes to the playoffs. You know, let's assume once the wild card game ends, which are coin flips, those eight teams, it's a coin flip. Yeah, no, I I agree. Uh, I mean, I, I I would to the extent that we differ from a coin flip, I, I would differ in the same way that Rob suggested. I, I, the Dodgers just look tremendously strong. Well, that's been the first hour here on Morton Moneyball, but that's that's the bad news, meaning an hour's gone, but there's an hour to go. So lots of great guests. We have Olympic champion Justin Gatlin joining us right after the break. So please stay with us here on Wharton Moneyball. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, business, and statistics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm joined by my co-host this morning, Professor Shane Jensen from the Statistics Department. And, of course, this is a call-in show. Uh, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Well, Shane, we're in for a real treat. We've had lots of great guests here on Wharton Moneyball, lots of uh, very accomplished athletes. But I can say without certainty, and there's no one who's a bigger fan of track and field than me, there's no one who has a more of an appreciation for the sacrifice and the hard work it takes to win such uh, such events. And, of course, most people consider the most glamorous and high-profile event in all of sports, maybe, the 100-meter dash in the Olympics. We're truly honored to have Justin Gatlin here uh, joining our show. Justin, as every here, all of our listeners on Wharton Moneyball knows, is the 2004 Olympic gold medalist in the 100-meter, a multi-time world champion, including... In 2017, winning the gold medal at the World Championships. And even more importantly, Justin is giving back. 
Um, this Saturday, um, he's actually hosting a youth sprint clinic at Ocean Breeze Athletic Complex on Staten Island. And this is wonderful to read. This event will inaugurate a series of clinics in cities across the U.S. to promote community service, help instill kindness, confidence, and competition in youth. So not only is he a great champion, but he's doing something, as we all know, sports is a great path to life skills. So, Justin, uh, thank you for joining Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host, Shane Jensen. Eric, Shane, thank you very much for having me. Well, Justin, we could ask you, I mean, we are going to try to keep you on as long as possible. We've got tons of questions for you. But first, you know, let's start talking about your Ocean Breeze, the the, the, uh, youth sprint clinic you're going to be having. Maybe let's take it back to the beginning of your career. We're an analytics show. How did you start training and how important is it to start training at a young age and at what age would that be um for me i started actually at a young age not even knowing anything about organized track and field i just knew i was fast so by the time i got to middle school and high school i understood more about track and field and being on teams and and basically cohesiveness and from there you know days where i really didn't want to compete or I didn't believe in myself, I still believe in my teammates and I know they counted on me. And that's what I'm just trying to, throughout my whole career, that's what I kind of built myself on and I wanted to be able to bring that back to the community. So could you tell us a little bit about what these clinics are going to be? In other words, can you, How? well you just mentioned at middle school age, I have a middle school son, um, but how old can someone tell that they've you know, you know, we always talk about are you one standard deviation above the mean, which means you're a fast runner, two standard deviations above the mean, which means, you know, maybe you're a collegiate athlete, and then there's someone like yourself who's three, four standard deviations above the mean, like the fastest man on the planet. How soon can someone tell that someone has the potential for something like this? I believe you could start at the age of eight. You know, you could see um, a, an outlier talent, you know, like a young athlete, who really doesn't know what they have, but physically superior than others. And they're kind of eating and sleeping, whatever that sport is. Maybe football, you're watching some mini-mite, you know, kid out there who's eight years old spinning and juking these uh, other uh, other uh, opponents. And same thing with baseball or soccer, you know, at a young age. So I think to be able to make a change and for athletes who do have a voice and have a platform already with their physical talents, you know, we talk about making changes not only in sports, but around the world, athletes are ambassadors of peace and goodwill. And I think that starting at a young age and instilling that in these young, in these young kids and these athletes, you know, they'll grow to be more responsible adults and athletes and have leadership roles. Well, as I said in my intro to you, Justin, I think um, I, I know you feel the same way. As much as you've accomplished on the track, which is, you know, no one could <laughs> diminish that you've accomplished everything one would want to accomplish on the track. Um, I'm personally hoping that what you accomplish um, in the next 50 years of your life, instilling this uh, spirit in youth uh, is just as satisfying for you as what you did on the track. I appreciate it. I mean, you know, my my career has been. I feel like I've ran uh, three careers for three different athletes. So you know, my career has been long. And using track and field as a sprinter, your life your lifespan is about 27, 28. You know, and then then you start teetering out. I'm at 35 right now. So I'm just trying to be wise and trying to be able to use the energy of my fans and supporters 
to be able to keep pushing me to the 2020. Well, that's what I, so you, you gave me a, a perfect lead into my next question. So, you know, in some ways, I think you're roughly the same age as another great champion who had a tremendous season in sports. And I know you follow lots of sports as Roger Federer in tennis. So how does someone at age 35, in his case, he just turned 36, how does someone have this long a career and training? Is it rest? As you've seen, Roger Federer now plays only four or five tournaments a year, maybe eight or nine. How much role does rest play and your, you know, in some sense, not wearing yourself out at lower level meets play in your ability to even dream and think about 2020 as a 35 year old athlete? It's, it's, it's equal. Rest is just as equal as being active. As you become an older athlete, um, you have to be wiser. You also have to be able to uh, understand the threshold of your body and recovery is key. You know, as a young athlete, you know, you can bounce back from a sprain or a hamstring, you know, strain fairly easy. As an older athlete, those are the things that, you know, will hinder you and also bring on other issues and other problems. And, you know, as a Roger Federer or Nadal or, or Justin Gatlin as myself, you know, we can't afford to be out for a long period of time because that's what people want to see. They want to see you do the things you did to get where you're at now. And we have to be able to head off these injuries and stay healthy, you know, at the same time. So we're here on Wharton Moneyball talking to Olympic champion and world champion Justin Gatlin, uh, 2004 Olympic gold medalist in the 100-meter dash. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, if you have a question for Justin, please call us at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You just mentioned something, Justin. I was reading in your bio this morning that at one point you tried out, and by the way, I'm, I'm a big Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan, um, <laughs> that you tried out for the NFL. I have two questions, so let me ask them one at a time. You mentioned that you felt it was potentially important to kind of dedicate yourself to a given sport. Could you have still been, then I'll get to the NFL in a second, could you have been an Olympic champion if at age 15, let's say high school age, you had been doing track and field, NFL, uh, uh, football, and other sports, or was it crucial that you actually dedicated yourself to a single sport? I think for me it was really crucial to dedicate myself to a sport. You know, um, not take away from any other athlete who has gone on to do double sports or dual sports, because um, sometimes you have to find who you are. And I, I had to do that because I did swimming, I did baseball, I did football, I did instruments, I played in the band, you know. Um, I was just trying to find who I was. But for me, it, it came a time where it was a fork in the road where I had to figure out, okay, do I want to be a king of one sport or do I want to kind of be a jack of all trades, you know? And I really wanted to excel in sprinting because that's what I was known for. I was always the fast guy no matter what we were doing. So when I saw that I had a niche, I I wanted to take that. So did you, and by the way, if you had decided at age, I think it was when you were 27, 28, that you tried out for the NFL teams, if you had made it in the NFL, would this have ended your track career? Could you have possibly done both at the same time? Or were you thinking at that time that that was kind of your peak of your racing? As you even said, you're not the same uh, sprinter you are at 35, and even though you just won the world championship, congratulations for that. But could you have continued in the NFL and done track and field? I'm not going to say it's impossible, but for me, I don't think so. You know, I would have... I would have dedicated my mind and my body to, to football. And as athletes, you know, you just don't step out there every day and say, this is my body structure and this is it's going to be able to fit into football. It's going to be able to fit in the track. 
I watch other athletes go from track to football, football to track, and their body structures are different. You know, your, your muscles are more dense to be able to take those hits in football. Um, so that leaves you in track and field. If you take that body over to track and field, you're going to uh, sustain more strains, uh, hamstring pulls, quad pulls, just basically muscle pulls because your muscles are too dense and not as flexible as you need for track and field. Now, if you switch from track and field to football, you're going to get banged up all over the field because you're you're more limber, but at the same time, you're not you're more fragile, you know. And that speed will help, but let, I mean, let's be honest. When you go up in the air and catch that ball, and you're coming down, and you think you're about to run a hundred meter a hundred meter dash, it's not that's not what's going to happen. You're either going to get hit, or you're going to end up in that end zone. But most likely, you're going to get hit. So let me ask you a question since we're, uh, you know, our show is Wharton Moneyball, and I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, Moneyball era in baseball and the role that analytics played. This was in building the Oakland A's. This was uh, Michael Lewis's book. What role did has analytics played? Let's start, forget yourself for a second. How do you see analytics, if at all, changing the field of track and field? So, for example, um, do people more measure themselves? Like, are you wearing all kinds of devices while you're training to basically keep a record of, you know, what's your fastest acceleration speed, how quickly you recover? So what role, forget yourself for just a second, what role do you see analytics playing in track and field moving forward? It, it covers all the bases. I mean, when you're at the top, what, the, what separates uh, first, second, third usually is thousands to hundreds of seconds. So, you know, as you begin your season in the fall training, which is like around November, December, and you're, and you're using your base training all the way from that, that moment all the way to about uh, the end of April to where the season begins. So from April to September, that's your competition time. So you really don't get time to really go back and do hard training because you're always on the road in season. So when you're training, in your training season, that's time when you break down your race by 10-meter segments. And from there, you're able to calculate how fast you can run, how consistently you can run. And by the time you step on a track, you already have the formula in your head that I'm at 9-8 pace, I'm at 9-7 pace, I'm at world record pace. So now the only thing that stops you is your mind, your competitors, and the elements. And usually if you're a student of your, of your craft, you can be able to know what your competitors are going to do, what their attributes are, what their flaws are, and what they're bringing to the track. Weather, you really can't change it. It's either a headwind or a tailwind, but with your technique, you can be able to, to, to fend off a, a headwind and still be uh, a formidable opponent when you cross the finish line. Um, but other than that, this is what I, I breathe it. I breathe this kind of stuff. This track and field is more of a science than more of a sport to me in a way because I've gotten to the point where you race in Usain Bolt and i got to figure out, okay, how can I beat a guy who has a, lo- a longer inseam than I do and he has a longer stride length and uh, we both put out the same amount of output power but we're at different heights. So I have to make sure that I, I, I incorporate more power in my strides than he could to be able to even uh, match his stride length. Wow. So so it even gets down to that level of detail. So it's good to hear that analytics has now played a significant role. But you actually, I want to go back to one thing you said, and then I'll, I've been monopolizing you. I want to turn it over to my colleague, Shane Jensen. You literally break it down into 10 meter, you know, 10, 10 meter intervals, if you'd like. And you think about kind of how can you get better in maybe each of those 10 meters? 
Exactly. But the thing is, track and field is not about fast times, and that's what people always want to see. It's great. But it's also about, for that athlete, it's about consistency. So if you have an athlete who's running about 9, 8, consistently through a season, which is over a span of like maybe four or five months, you know, um, either he's going to teeter out towards the end, um, depending on how his coaching is going, um, or either he's going to be ready to drop a big time and have a PR and a personal record. So, you know, what you do is the longevity that you want in this career in track and field is you try to look for consistency. And I try to tell everybody that it's not a young man's sport, it's an old man's sport. If you're willing to learn and willing to be able to find that consistency, you'll have a fruitful career. Well, you've just brought up another interesting – so I lied. I'm not turning it over to Shane. You keep saying great <laughs> stuff, so i got to ask one more question. Uh, well, I'm going to ask a lot more questions, but I'm going to turn it over to Shane after this one. If you knew – this, you, what you just said brought up an interesting concept for me. Suppose I told you that the 2020 Olympics was going to be your last race ever. And I don't want you to announce anything here because I hope you keep running for 10 more years, but let's imagine it was your last race. Would you train differently and not be thinking about consistency, because there's not going to be a set of races after that, but you would train for peak performance for that one moment, and then would that would that lead to a different training regimen? Um, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, going into going into that that year, um, I had to sit down with my coach and we had to figure out a, a race a race strategy, and we've we've done that every year. Um, what are we looking for? Are we looking for faster times? Are we looking for to have a, a, a solid buildup to our Olympic trials? Because you're going to have to peak more than once in a year. You're going to peak, you know, at the Olympic trials, which is the hardest team to make in the world because our talent pool is so deep. And then you're going to have to kind of settle yourself down, race a couple races, and then get ready for the Olympics itself. So that's um, where you have to peak once again. So you have basically two peak seasons in one year. Um, so I think that if I had to go into 2020 and at the age I would be, I would believe that I would, I would, I would want to leave it all on the table, man. I want to leave it all on the table. So I would go out there with the intent of running the fastest time I can run at the age of 38 and be able to make that podium. And right now I'm already the oldest, fastest man and the, and the oldest man to ever make a world championship or Olympic podium. So I don't have to break my own records. Hey, this is uh, Justin. This is Shane Jensen. Uh, this this concept of consistency is a really interesting one because obviously, as we're statisticians, and it kind of links this this concept of variance for us. So, you're you're talking about obviously, it's it's very compelling to hear that like you know you you want to have consistency through for to, in order to have longevity in a career, you basically have to have consistency. But in terms of like, let's say I'm the like tenth best runner in the world. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to invest in a training regime, and I have a choice between kind of a training regime that would kind of consistently put me at tenth or you know eighth to tenth best in the world, or something where I could be at you know a higher variance thing, where you know in, on my peak days I could maybe compete for, to to win to be up in the top three, but on other days you know I'm going to be in you know the fiftieth in the world. Like what for those athletes that kind of know that they're not going to be top three, but are kind of in the consideration for top 10 would you ever suggest a non you know kind of investing in the higher variance regime um i would tell them to dabble in it you know not because there's two types of sprinters in our in our world there's a guy who's gonna who's gonna turn out a big time and they're gonna be like a, a flash in a pan and they're gonna they're gonna spark the interest of different sponsors shoe companies because everyone's gonna throw money at them thinking like they're the next great 
because everyone's always waiting for the next great, no matter what the sport is, right? So, um, but then you have the other sprinter who is a consistent sprinter, who's a guy who's 10th of the world, who's kind of floating around 10th on a great year, a great, you know, great season. He's gonna, he can bump up to eight or seven. But if you think about it, that guy who's always consistent, he will always be at a championship. You know, unless he's like in a in a talent pool that's so deep like America, you know, he ha- he's going to have to bump himself up and have a different regime. But if he's somewhere else in the world, South Africa, running for a different country, um, China, Japan, and he's sitting at 10th in the world, he's living nice, you know, in our sport because he's making every championship team, he's making every Olympic team, He's pretty much, if he has a good series of runs, he's going to make every finals. He's going to be, he has an opportunity to be able to get on that podium easier than someone who has a flash in the pan who's ran a great time beginning of the season and then four months later he doesn't make, you know, that progression or that jump where everybody thinks he's going to make. Justin, this is Eric Bradlow again. Um, you mentioned something earlier about your competition with Usain Bolt. Obviously, he's now retired. Um, as you think about the mental edge, you even brought this up. It's a mental game as well. Now that you're the world champion, you obviously you've been the Olympic champion. You're now the world champion. Does does race the sprinting? At 100 meters, does that have a mental edge? Like when you go into a race now, or like, do you have an advantage, not just in your own mind, but in the mind of the other people that you think actually carries over, or it's just the race is going to be what the race is, they don't care who they're running against? When you're a dominant sprinter in our sport, yeah, it, it, mental warfare is, is there. It's, it's, especially um, in the warm-up area, getting ready for your races, and in, in the call room before you go out onto the track, it's, it's, it's really intense. It's thick in the air. Um, there's almost like a, a totem pole in a way. So someone like myself or Usain Bolt <clears throat> walks into the uh, walks into the arena. The other athletes are already kind of probably four out of the whole field, four out of eight have already kind of like put themselves in a position where I'm not going to win today mentally. Now, so the other, you know, the other the, – Let's say, like, if you're including yourself, then the other three, then they're looking at, okay, you're going to have to really race those guys. Maybe halfway through the race you can, you can take out two, and then that one guy, like a Usain and a Justin, I'm going to have to race this guy today. This, this is the guy I'm going to have to race. And that's what usually it pans out to. It's going to be a head-to-head competition against two of the guys who have confidence uh, to go out there and cross the finish line first. So let me ask you a question related to that. So um, I apologize. I don't know you were. Could you tell me again the exact time you won the 2017 World Championship? Was it like nine eight five somewhere in there? Yeah nine nine ninety eight. Oh nine ninety eight. No nine ninety two. I'm sorry. Nine ninety two. Okay. Yeah. How much variation is there? So for example, you know, we as statisticians talk about you know confidence intervals. Where is the time likely to be? If you had had your peak performance that day, could you have been as low as 985, I'm making up a number, and being as worse as maybe 999, you know, 0.07 either way, or is it a smaller interval? How wide is the variability of, you know, Justin Gatlin, world champion, gold medalist, woke up and had a bad day, had a good day? How much variation is there, And do you think, in your times? It's big. You know, um, I didn't really realize that. Um, <clears throat> basically, your surroundings... When you, the way you sleep, the way you eat, the way you train and prepare yourself for the race, 
all those things are very important, you know, preparation for that last moment of crossing that finish line and what time you have. Um, I didn't realize that until 2016 when I was in Rio, you know, because I feel like it was an assault on all fronts. You know, I was, I was competing, you know, for good nutrition. I was competing against, for, against the elements. I was competing against, you know, um, traveling to the stadium every day. It was like an hour, hour bus ride, you know. Um, and then you feel so drained when you get there. So then you got to figure out how, to, how I'm going to pump myself up to be able to get ready to race. My mind is ready to go, but my, my body is not. And sometimes it's vice versa. So for me, is when 2017 came around, I kind of put together a way to say, okay, do I need to get to the, to the stadium like I'm getting to the airport for an international flight two to three hours earlier, get myself uh, an area to where I can settle in, get my mind right, get my body taken care of, and then ease my way into my warm-up, and so I won't be as drained and feel as rushed. Um, but also you got to think about those athletes getting on the star line for the finals, no matter what it is if you're watching. You know, when it comes to Olympics or world championships, basically those guys had to battle for two other races to get to that finals. And that race, the semis before the finals, is usually an hour or less before the finals. So you're seeing these guys and you think that they're fresh and they're ready to run and usually it's, it's actually a battle of attrition. It's about who's going to have the strongest mind to get off that block because everyone on that line is tired. Yeah, could you? T- could you, that's actually the, the, was the next question I was going to ask you. Um, how, and this partly comes to training regimen, but from someone, when we watch the Olympics or the World Championships, I'm shocked that sometimes there's like, there's only an, you're telling me the finals is an hour? How is this person who just ran, a, let's say whether it's a 10.02, 10.05, you know, a number good enough that's not their best, how is this person going to race again in an hour? Could you talk to us about not just the mental drain, but the physical drain? And if the answer is an hour's too short, should there be a minimum time in between the, let's call it the semifinal heat and the finals? And if it is, what do you think that should be? If you could design, you know, the Olympia, the IAAF or something like that, if you could design what the optimal time would be between the semifinals and the finals, how long a gap would that be? Well, for me, um, I would design it to where the prelims and the semis are the same day, and then you have a showdown, one race. Every man's going to be fresh the next day. That's what everybody wants to see, you know? So, and everybody wants to see everyone ready to run fast, and everybody wants to see fast times. That's, that's it. Are Before there any are there any races that are yeah, that way? I'm I'm a little surprised it's not. I mean, uh, from from sort of a a fan perspective, that seems be- a better idea as well. Like, why why is why is it the case that they want to do the semis and finals in one in the same day? You know, over time it's changed. You know, where people like you know people take a vote or or tally and say we rather see you know um, some runners like to be able to have a warm up run before they have their real race you know, their finals. Um, and, but some people say, you know, I'm good for the one-off. Let's go out here and run. I'm ready to go. Um, for me, I think that the one-off is fine because you race two races the earlier the day before. Now you get a time to go rest, ice bath, massage, get a good night's sleep, and get ready for the finals because that's all you got to worry about. Um, so you're kind of like um, you're subject to whatever is dealt to you, and we – we have to go to our governing body to be able to kind of cast a vote to say, okay, we like to switch it. Because it used to be in 04, I'm a dinosaur guy, so it used to be in 04 where you had to run all four rounds. So you had a prelims, then you had a quarterfinals, you had a semis, then you had, you know, a finals, you know, so. All on the you, same day? 
Basically, yeah. You had you had one early at 8 a.m., all in a two-day span. So you had one at 8 a.m., then you had one at uh, maybe 3 p.m., and then he'd come back the next day and pretty much do the same thing all over again. I see. So I, I need to ask you something because people maybe don't understand it. So let me contrast. You also run the 200 meters. So a lot of people just say, well, I don't understand. Why don't you just run 100% exertion as hard as you can for the entire uh, whether it's the 100 meter or the 200 meter, is that physically possible, or do you have to pace yourself during a race? It's physically impossible. Um, a normal athlete can be able to um, reach top end speed at 70 meters. So that's less than 100 meters, obviously. So now you you have to implement different strategies and techniques to be able to kind of stretch out your speed across you know, 100 meters alone, not even just 200 meters, but 100 meters. So, you know, that's what comes in the drive phase. That's why you see guys in the blocks and their heads down as they're coming out of the blocks and they're kind of like in this um, pushing motion for the first 10 to 20 meters and then their head comes up and then they start running faster and they're building up momentum because you're using inertia to be able to pull you down the track. And once you're up and going, you know, you're kind of like, free spinning your legs are kind of like right underneath you and they just keep going 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 you know so these are different techniques that we use to be able to stretch out our speed over 100 meters and the 200 meters is just a whole different thing you know so it's a whole different beast so you'd be able to kind of be able to like it's almost like chest to checker so 200 meters is kind of like chest where you kind of like be patient run the bend be able to tack off the curve figure out where you're at, where your opponent's at, with 50 meters to go, and then you hold on for the last 50 meters and have the best technique possible, and usually you're the one who's going to win. So let me ask you one last question before we. I want to go back to talk about your clinics. Um, can you make, well, it's a two-part question, really. Can you make an error during a race and still win the race? And secondly, do you have a sense kind of, even though, you know, to us it's 10 seconds, to you it might seem like, or less than 10 seconds, hopefully for you, um, it might seem like a lifetime. Um, can you make mid-race adjustments? Or, like, if you make an error, it's like that race is over. Yeah, you can. Depending on the athlete you are, um, if you're a little more superior than the other athletes when it comes to when it comes physically, I try to pride myself on being a technician. So maybe if my hips are low, usually when you're a sprinter, you kind of don't want to be in a sitting position or a squatting position when you're up and running. You kind of want to be running tall. So you want your hips right underneath you. You want to have your legs kind of like right there, striking the ground right underneath your hips so everything is going forward. Um, I can be able to adjust mid-race and be able to pick up the cadence and be able to still uh, come across the finish line. I think kind of, kind of actually what I did in 2017 at the World Championships, you know, um, I kind of felt myself not in the front of the pack. And by the time 50 meters came through, I had to make sure that my acceleration phase was on point. Do you think that uh, now I have to ask you one more question before getting back to your clinics? Do you think part of your longevity is exactly what you just mentioned? Is that you're a technician, and that you know, in some sense, you were both given God-given speed, but you were also given you've trained and you've become a technician, and therefore, in some sense, I don't want to say it's easier for you. I don't want to diminish any of the th- accomplishments you've had or how hard you've worked. But being a technician has allowed you to stay in the sport for longer. I, I think so. Um, also, that is uh, two other reasons. 
um, yes, I'm a, uh, I believe I'm a, a good technician, but I've also evolved as an athlete. You know, um, I try to be look at what is surrounding me, the younger athletes, and I try to make sure that I don't become a relic or I'm doing something that's kind of obsolete. I try to make sure that I, I stay stay ahead of the pack. And then I also change a lot about me and turn it into a lifestyle. You know, like I'm doing sit-ups and push-ups when I don't have to. I'm in off-season. But those are things that keeps my body primed and ready so when I get into training mode, it'll be a little easier for me to train and not shocking for my body. So as I become older, I kind of wean myself into a situation where I don't have to go eat hamburger and pizza all the time, and then I try to, like, force my body to be in shape, you know. Um, and then another thing is I think what really pushes me is my fans, my fans and my supporters, people who have never seen laid eyes on me in person, you know, they're rooting for me, you know, and I use that. I use that energy. I use that, you know, to be able to say, okay, you are you, – they're telling me that I've helped change them and made them uh, a brave a brave person to be able to fight through the adversities that they've had but also um, be a wiser athlete and learn new techniques. And when I see that, that gives me power to say, okay, someone's watching, someone wants to be better, so I want to be able to have be that beacon of light in a way to be able to say, okay, keep pushing forward and learn them all you can learn and be the best athlete you can be and person. Well, I, I can't think of a better segue to let's go back to where we started, to the youth clinic, uh, youth sprint clinic you're hosting this Saturday at Ocean's Breeze Athletic Complex on Staten Island. Could you tell us kind of just, you know, tell us about that a little bit. Tell us what you're hoping to accomplish. And again, tell us why this is so important to you, even though you're still a very active world champion, why taking time to do this is so important to you. Well, I've been wanting to do it for the last couple of years, but it's obviously with training and focus on the Olympics and the world championships the last, the last couple of years have been my focal point. But, you know, starting actually in Rio last year, I sat down with um, one of my coworkers and we went over everything we need to do to get this foundation up and going and make it official. And basically what it is is I truly believe that <clears throat> athletes aren't politicians Athletes aren't freedom fighters, but athletes have they they have a platform. They have a platform to where they can be able to be heard, not just physically, but you know verbally as well. So when an athlete steps out on the court, or the field, or the track, wherever they're at, you know they have a huge following. A huge following, not just because of what they do out there, but for the character that they are. And I think that to make a change throughout the world and bring a, a more peaceful regime across the world, I think that it has to start with somewhere where we all can agree. And I think that that's where sports is. We agree on sports. Regardless of you, if you're a fan of the Boston Red Sox or the Yankees, you love baseball. And I think that that's where it needs to start. And that's where I'm trying to get you know ahead of the game and, and get these young athletes and uh, have a sense of leadership, have a sense of sports and like conduct, and uh, watch out for different pitfalls and be the best person they can be and also be a vessel to the next, uh, the next future athletes that come after them. Well, Justin, I want to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. This has truly been my honor to speak to both an Olympic champion, a world champion, but someone who's investing in youth and someone who's given so much to the sport. And actually, you know, I've been watching you on TV for years, and it's really an honor to speak to you, and thank you for spending time with us this morning. 
Thank you so much, guys. Thanks, Justin. Yeah, so this has been Wharton Moneyball. Again, we've been talking to Olympic champion Justin Gatlin. That's the end of three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a, a quarter to go. We're going to talk about NFL and all kinds of other stuff, so please join us again after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow. I'm your host this morning, along with my co-host Shane Jensen. We're here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 844 942-7866. And for those of you that listened to us during the last half hour, we had a real treat. Olympic champion Justin Gatlin joining us. Not only a thoughtful but well-spoken young man, but someone who recognizes the importance of training, who in, in, recognizes the importance of strategy during the race, kind of consistency. Again, back to the point we talked about with Rob Arthur, it's always back to variance. And, you know, how do I minimize my variance? I don't know. Shane, What? just any quick reactions to our conversation with Justin. Well, I mean, just the, the general reaction is, man, what a what a what a fantastic uh, segment. I mean, he was really. Um, it was really interesting to kind of basically hear about the amount of kind of mental aspects of the game. You know, I mean, we obviously a lot of the you know sort of what we I think or at least I project uh, as far as the hundred meters goes. It's a pure test of athleticism, but really it is. There's a mental aspect, and the fact that these. Uh, these athletes are breaking down and and, and now analyzing the race in like ten meter segments and thinking about like you know the various strategies involved with that and obviously knowing the peak point of acceleration is basically at around seventy meters like yeah you know. no that's right and 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 the sort of uh, basically the amount the extent to which training and kind of mental preparation goes in was really interesting to hear. Well, so I, I again, I could have talked to Justin for all day long, but again, uh, thank you, Justin, uh, for speaking to us here on Wharton Moneyball. So I want to go back to baseball a little bit before we move on to the NFL, which we'll talk about in our last 15 or so minutes. Um, I was looking at, you and I have talked about this topic a couple times already on Wharton Moneyball, but I want to just revisit it again. So which team do you think, by the way, in the uh, and, and, uh, MLB right now has the best Plus minus. Let's call it take runs for and subtract runs against. Which team do you think has the best? I would guess the Dodgers. It's not. It's the Indians, Mm. by the way. And the Indians are at plus 230, which, by the way, is far and above any other team, by the way. And just Mm. to let you know, they have a worse record than the Dodgers, but their plus minus is... So before I get to my second point, does the Shane Jensen coin flipping rule, if I told you that the Indians are at plus 230... And the Dodgers are at plus 168. That's a pretty big gap, okay? Basically, it's almost half a run a game difference over Mm -hmm. that period. Does that change anything for you in terms of your coin flipping model of, you know what, when the Indians play the Red Sox or the Dodgers play, it's really 50-50. Does this, does, does the degree of plus minusness, does, is that worth anything to you, Shane Jensen? Very little. Um, I think, I, I mean, again, like if, if the Indians meet the Dodgers in the World Series, um, I'm, I'm not even sure I would give, I would favor the Indians. Uh, in that matchup, right? Even though, as you pointed out, they, I guess, in a plus-minus sense, have had an even more impressive season. Right, right. So let me ask you a second question. So the Dodgers, I mentioned to you, are 168. Um, they're not the second-best team in baseball. Do you know who that is? Houston? Uh, good guess. Uh, no. Nationals? Nope. Red Sox? Nope. Not Red Sox, no. Um, Yankees? The Yankees are at plus 178. 
Wow. So the let's now you've talked about this how yeah. we lived on Mariano Rivera for years. Mm-hmm. The Yankees are at plus one seventy eight. How does that field not be able to close out games? Well, I'll tell you, it felt it's, okay. It's pretty the, dissatisfying, right? Well, I'll yeah. tell you, the other night when you I was watching the Yankees, the Yankees play the Twins. Mm-hmm. When and by the way, Matt, if you our producer, if you could just tell me the Astros plus minus because I didn't write it down. Maybe it is better than the Yankees. They might be second best, but the Yankees are better than the Dodgers. The Yankees are better than the Nationals. The Yankees are better than the Cubs, and the Yankees are far better than the Red Sox. At that, I do know at plus one seventy eight. The other night. The Yankees brought in Dale and Patances in an up 2-1 game. Patances loaded the bases, got only one out. They had to bring in Chapman. Now they're desperate back to Chapman. He did get a five-out save. The Yankees did win that game. But, wow, the Yankees have a better plus-minus than the Dodgers, and they have 12 less wins. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I mean that is certainly over an entire—I mean, I don't think there's much predictive value for that in the playoffs, but— over an entire season, the one thing that I we have historically kind of noticed is the extent to which teams differ, consistently differ between their wins and plus minus. It's often due to bullpen, you know, and because that's that's kind of what what makes the difference at the end of the game. Um, and and yeah, the Yankees for years, for like a decade, overperformed, overperformed their plus minus in terms of wins. Um, and it was it was Rivera, and well, and now 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 that you guys, I mean, it's it's interesting because I say like, hey, you know, I'm I'm, I'm kind of teasing you. What's it like to deal with a mediocre bullpen? They shouldn't actually be a mediocre no. bullpen either. I don't know right. what's going on specifically with the Yankees. By the way, but... the Astros are at one fifty three. Okay, so they're much they're not they're worse than the Yankees and the Dodgers. So again, the Yankees at eighty four wins yeah. are sitting here with a better. Runs for minus runs against than the Dodgers and the Astros than the Nationals and the Red Sox and the Cubs, um, which is really interesting. Let me ask you a different question. I've, you, I'm sure you've looked at this or people have looked at this. Does it matter runs for versus runs against? And I'm going to put it in the language of a statistician. Is it shift invariant? What I mean by that is the Yankees have a plus 178. The Dodgers are similar, plus 168. But the Yankees have scored 100 more runs than the Dodgers, but they've also given up 100 more. Yeah. Does it matter which one? Like, would, Let me ask you a different question. Related. Would you rather be the Dodgers, who have scored less but have given up less, come playoff time? Yeah. Or the Yankees, who have scored more and given up more? Uh, Do you think there's any predictive well, value on that? Again, I, I don't personally. I think it'll probably be a coin flip anyway, but... I mean, most people, when they talk about the playoffs, seem to favor pitching, right? I mean, that like really strong starting pitching is is, is the key to success in the playoffs. And you, you can certainly make that argument in, in a short series or a one-game playoff that it is going to be really dependent on your starting pitcher. Um, so, I mean, under under that reasoning, you, you'd want to be the team that scores a hundred, you know, that's that's allows less runs. Yeah, I've got to believe, I mean, obviously people have done, it's not hard to do a regression or a machine learning model or something where you use runs fours, runs against to see kind of their differential and the difference between the two even mm-hmm. to see their difference in predictive value. Um, I've got to believe I would much rather be the team that's given up fewer runs. Much rather. Yeah. But what I'd really rather be, as we've talked about, is I'd much rather be the team with three really good starting pitchers. And I don't care about, that's why, you know, in some sense, just give me, you know, give me the the team with the best starting pitching, and I'll take that team in the playoffs. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, that is, you know, to the certain extent why, beyond their record, why people are really, you know, you had to kind of, if you were a betting man, you'd probably put the Dodgers and the Indians in the World Series because of that.
And by the way, I'm not picking. I don't like the Dodgers and the Indians in the World Series. Uh, I don't think that's what it's going to be. What do you think be. it's going to be? Well, you know, you know, you brought up something just off the air, which I stopped you because we're not allowed to talk sports off the air. But when you came in this morning, I guess you hadn't stayed up. I stayed up because I was. I had a hope and a dream that the Yankees would be two back, not three back. But unfortunately, the Red Sox won another. For some unknown reason, this smells to me the stench of another Red Sox year. I'll tell you Uh, why. They seem to win all the games when they need to. Like, when the Yankees are catching up, oh, I guess the Red Sox are turning it up a little bit. I don't know why I have this sickening feeling in my stomach that the Red Sox are going to win when they need to in the playoffs. I don't know why I feel this way. But I, I, I don't feel that way about the Red Sox this year, but I love the fact that you do. I love the fact that we now live in an era where a Yankee fan can actually feel disconcerted about what the Red Sox are up to. It's, it's, it's a brave new world but we I, live in. I, I agree with that, but I will say the following. You and I both agree the Yankees are so far ahead of where we thought they would be this year. Yeah, I mean, and they're right. so set up for the future. Like, no, they agree. made a lot of great trades. They got a lot of young talent in. Mm-hmm. I mean, all their best players, pretty much Sanchez, Judge, Gregorius, etc. I mean, they're younger players. Yep. And so I'm very encouraged by the next 10 years of Yankee baseball. And, of course, the $200 million will kick in, and they'll bring in a bunch of players, too. Yeah, those, so. yeah I mean, uh, let's, again, hesitate to describe them as the scrappy underdogs. I think you're setting them up as here or whatever. I mean, they still are a very high-budget team. But, no, they, I, they've obviously done a really great job of essentially kind of recharging or renewing their roster, you know, and and going towards youth, you know, which obviously all teams have been doing for a while, but the Yankees kind of were one of the last holdouts on that because they they could sort of spend on free agents. Right. And, and also now, you want to just try to squeeze out one more championship if you could from F- A-Rod and Jeter, you know, why yeah. not go with the old guys there? Right, no, that's right. And 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 now, but they, they have done a great job of re- renewing that roster. I, I hate to say it, really. <laughs> all right, well, I'm sure our fans here on Wharton Moneyball are saying let's stop with that baseball nonsense this is the nfl season the number one sport here in the united states and if it's the nfl season and if it's wharton moneyball that means it's time shane for you know what our moneyball matchup moneyball matchups I, I, I could let this music play for the last 12 minutes, but you know what? It, it gets me really psyched up for the NFL. So We, we should ha- probably let it play because, man, this slate of games this week. It's not it, It's not looking so great. Gross. Um, but either way, on, here on Moneyball Matchup, we always pick a game. So, Shane, you got you get to yeah. go first. You gotta, oh, you got to pick Look- a game. So why don't you go? Which game kind of has catches your eye as something that's interesting? Well, let, let's again point out that there are not. Unfortunately, this seems to be kind of an underwhelming slate of games this week. I, I'm going to go with Giants at Eagles. Um, really? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 the Giants, the Giants being bad is something I take a lot of enjoyment in. And um, I'm kind of hoping. That I just want to make sure we're going. clear. This is the two-time, su- well, four-time, yeah, four time, but okay. two-time Super Bowl Giants that beat yeah. the Patriots. I just want to make sure we're talking yeah. about the same yeah, Giants that, team because you know our Moneyball user listeners that's could the be team. confused. That's the team, the one that broke up the perfect season. Yeah. I just want to make sure we're talking about the same Giants. Yeah, no, that that, that, okay, that, that, that is the team I am referring to. Um, I would, I, I actually am kind of intrigued because again we're seeing uh, a team that was set up, essentially loaded up. 
for on offense like, on offense for the like last you know you know the twilight of Eli Manning's career here and that twilight may have come a little too rapidly or or maybe he's just had a couple of bad games and you know they're going to turn it around i'm intrigued and i think the eagles are a good testing ground for that because they are a good team i mean i don't think they're a great team no. but they are they are a good team well also i think you know as you know Zero and three in the NFL is the kiss of death. Yeah, and so definitely. if the Giants it's very not, hard to recover from that, very hard to recover. And also, let well, let's just do the math. If they were to lose to the Eagles, they'd be zero and three. The Eagles would be two and one, so they would be two games behind the Eagles and having lost the tiebreaker and a division game to the Eagles. Yeah. And a matter of fact, the Eagles, by the way, if they were to win that game, would be 2-0 and in the division because they opened up at Redskins and won that game. And their loss happens to be against the Chiefs, which no loss is a good loss, but at least it's against an AFC team. Yeah. This game would put the Giants in essentially a three-game hole, which, you know, they don't play 162 games in the NFL. They play 16. Yeah. That would be a massive hole for them to try to dig out of. No, I agree. And I mean, especially because there's a lot of strong teams in the NFC, so the competition is going to be, I mean, I would say probably the wildcard competition is not going to be quite as tough as as we're pointing out in the AFC where we've had so many teams in the AFC West that are strong but in the NFC it's as you sort of said it's going to take like 10 wins probably at least to get into the playoffs um and to be down 0 and 3 I mean you basically you have not given yourself a lot of degrees of freedom moving forward in the season with that well let me talk about which game caught my eye but it, it obviously it's the Buccaneers game but it's for a different reason why it caught my eye so, at least it lists on our sheet here, Buccaneers at Vikings. It says at the moment the line is off the board due to Sam Bradford's injury. We've talked to Cade, our co-host. Mm-hmm. Cade Massey has the Massey Peabody system and the role that injuries might play. If I told you the Buccaneers were at the Vikings, but Sam Bradford was playing, I think we'd both agree, Let's. I'm making a number up, but let's say the Vikings are a five-point favorite, six-point favorite. They're probably a two- to three-point favorite yeah, anyway, and then you add right. the home field. That let's just say, right. let's call it five points, okay? Sounds about right. Without Sam Bradford, and I believe their backup quarterback is Case Keenum. Oof. Okay. How would how much would you shift the line? And that's that's why that game caught my eye, not only because it's a huge game for the Buccaneers, because if they could win at Vikings, that's a team they may be battling for a playoff spot, wild card or etc. How much do you change from minus five if Case Keenum's your quarterback? Because the the no the normal fan might say that could be worth ten points. That could be worth some massive number of points. But I'd realistically, by about five points. I should maybe call yeah. it a pick 'em game. Yeah. yeah, I would. I would probably without Sam Bradford, I'd probably on neutral field put Tampa Bay like maybe three points ahead of them. So yeah, that and that basically cancels out with the home field. So that would be. I mean, as you know, in the NFL, that moves you from basically obviously. Pick'em means 50-50. Yeah. Minus five is what, like 65%? Yeah. So you're saying it's basically a 2-1 to one game to a 50-50 game. Yeah. I would say that's probably about right. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I and I think, I mean, you know, if, they, if if all of a sudden Tom Brady can't play in the Texan, Patriots-Texans game, how much do you move the line there? Well, if they're, they're like, like minus 12 or something like that right now. Bill Belichick's still the coach, right? Yeah. And Jimmy Garoppolo still the backup? Yeah. I'd move the line to minus 12. <laughs> I'd move it okay, to Okay, I I'd guess that doesn't make my point. point. I would, As a matter I would, of fact, I would, since I, would, I believe I would, Brady's declining, I might even say Garoppolo moving it to 13. Oh, my goodness. No, all right, all right. Well, I'm maybe, maybe that's a bad example. That's but, a bad um, example. But let me, let me bring up some other games that seem to me to be statistical oddities at, at the line. If I, I Don't look down at your piece of paper for a mm-hmm. second. Broncos at Bills. 
What do you think would be a reasonable line in that game? Broncos at Bills. I mean, Broncos look very good. I'm a little surprised how good they look, yeah. but they look very good. Yes. And uh, you know, so but it's if at I, Bills. If we buy into that, I I have the Broncos maybe like three points favor. Three yeah, point favor. I'm surprised that the line's only one and a half. Like that seems to me. I mean, the Bills are not a great offensive team. Mm-hmm. Broncos defense looks good. Yeah. It looks really good. Really that good. seems to me to be a much more. I mean, that the line implies a 50-50 game, and I just don't see it that I mean, maybe the Broncos are going to lose the game. I don't know, but that's that one caught my eye by how close that line yeah, seems to be. Yeah, and I mean, be. that says to me that maybe Vegas is not uh, quite buying into the Trevor Simeon um, phenomenon quite yet. Exactly. I think that's right. Now, how do you deal with games? Remember my five awful teams that we talked about yeah. in the first half hour? How do you even think about a game like Browns at Colts? Oh, how do you even think about I, a game I, like that? I try that? not to think about it. I try not to think about it. But no, but I'm it, saying but... someone has to win that game. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, I, I would just, I mean, Colts are at home. Give them a little <laughs> bump yeah, for that. Yeah, and that's like, basically what it is. Even strength. They, throw up your hands. Say no, they're, but they're by the way, the Browns are a two-and-a-half-point favorite at wow. Colts, which means they think it's six points on a neutral field, which gets back to our first half hour. Well, I where don't you think, and I think I, I how don't... putrid the Colts are, and maybe Cleveland's not putrid. The, they're just bad. The The Colts are, are, are putrid, but I think the Browns are also putrid. Well, I would not put them as six-point favorites on neutral field. Well, Shane, as, as we're fortunate to have uh, every last half hour during our football season, we have Knowledge of Wharton host Dan Loney joining us, who's going to look at the games and see what games uh, maybe caught his eye. By the way, I didn't want to look at the Colts-Browns game. No, <laughs> I no, just, I mean, no, no, but Dan, the only reason I brought it up is we were talking about the worst teams, and they have to play each other. Yeah. I just meant, how do you even handicap a game like that where we have two bad teams who, you know, they're bad, and we know they're bad. Well, And, and I think also, especially when you're talking about the fact that you have a, a backup or third-string quarterback playing for one team, and you've got a rookie quarterback playing for the other team, I mean, I, I think we agree that's the most important position on the field in many cases so how do you handicap that level of of inexperience at that spot i think what shane is talking about is the way most people are thinking about is you know the browns did lose the first week to the steelers yeah but did not look bad at all right they did not look bad and i don't think they looked that i forget who they played last week i don't think they looked that bad last week either so i think you know people are saying six points against the colts which means the colts must really be the worst team statistically if they're on a neutral field a six-point underdog to the browns which not not necessarily talking about the game itself but it's interesting for the future of of what andrew luck decides or doesn't decide in terms of his health and whether oh, or not yeah. he comes back on the field or stays off of the, the field, field and you know i mean that becomes a big question for the colts going forward in terms of what they are as a team and as a betting proposition and i just forward. think it, it's fa- it's fascinating to me i mean you know four or five years three four years ago whenever the colts were in the afc championship game we were talking about oh no you know yep. how lucky are is indianapolis to get like two amazing hall of fame quarterbacks in a row and right. this is this is going they've totally renewed and they're going to be this team that challenges Challenges for the years to come, and they've just and by the way, the, Ra- the, the Ravens beat the Browns twenty four ten last week. Thanks, Matt. And by the way, 
it, it wasn't like they got shellacked. And no, by the way, right. I, poor Browns. They they opened the season with the Steelers and the and the Ravens, but well, that's the division no, they're in. That's me, what it is. Let me let me ask you this question. One of the things I was thinking of this week is the fact that okay, so the the Eagles are playing the Giants. The Giants are zero and two. You've got the Jets who are zero and two. You've got the Bears who are zero and two. I mean, we we have some teams that are potentially epically bad yeah. this year. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. we so Dan, we talked about this, and in our last thirty seconds, I'll just wrap up this thought. Yeah. I brought up in the first half hour of a show. To me, there are five really bad teams in the NFL. Yeah. I think this is going to be the highest variance season in the yeah. NFL. You you could have a team winning eleven games and not making the playoffs because yeah. those five bad teams are going to eat up a lot of losses, yep. a yep. lot of them. Well, yep. this has been two hours here on Wharton Moneyball. Thanks to our guests this morning, Rob Arthur from Five Thirty Eight. Thanks to our guest, Olympic champion Justin Gatlin. Thanks to our producer Matt Datz and our associate producer and sound engineer Danielle Bruno. Again. This is Wharton Moneyball. We're live Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern, but we're replayed throughout the week. You can listen to us on SoundCloud and on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at WMoneyball. Until next week, enjoy your statistics, enjoy your business, enjoy your sports. We'll see you on Wharton Moneyball.